Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddockcast podcast. My name is David Emmett and we are in a special location here. We're in the paddock at Assen. Sadly, not for the Dutch TT, the GP race, um, uh, but at least there's something happening here. We're in the middle of a track day. Um, there are bikes, bikes parked up everywhere. Uh, with me, I have a very special guest, um, a friend and Eurosport colleague, Peter Bomb. Um, Peter Bomb. I know him from his work with Danny Kent as a crew chief. Uh, before that, he has a long history of working here with motorcycles, working in the paddock for all sorts of teams, doing all sorts of things. We'll talk about a little bit about that later. Um, uh, is he any good? Well, he won a couple of world championships, so it can't be that bad. Um, Peter, welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Well done. Um, this is very much your home race, isn't it? Because, is... I mean, you are you uh, lazy and came in the car today. Yeah, yeah exactly because I'm lazy. Yeah, it's it's literally around the corner. When they warm up the bikes, I hear it. <laughs> um, well, first of all, a little bit of your history. You started out working for Ducati somewhere, I think. In the Ducati dealers. Before I went into racing, I worked uh, at motorbike shops, restoring old Ducati, diesel driving uh, engines, famous, and then went on to work in motorcycle racing at Tenkate in 2000. When they just started up with Carl Muggeritz, was our first rider, so it was 2000, Supersport 600, and uh, that was five, six years nearly at Tenkate, so Supersport Superbike, quite successful years. It was an interesting time for me because I was always very interested in data recording, reading about it as much as there was, not a lot, because at that time data recording in motorbike racing was very young. Formula One had it all, motorbike was, was following a couple of years behind. So having the opportunity uh, to work in, with data recording in, uh, in a racing team was, was really, really special to me. I took it with both hands. Um, the good thing looking back at it is uh, everything was new so there was not like a lot of people who know everything and keep the secrets for it no nobody knew anything we were just doing something more or less you know just a lot of hours a lot of time a lot of you know uh, trying stuff and this was a perfect time for me to to come there so i learned a lot because it was it was a young time in data recording on motorbikes so we did a lot of mistakes but as you know you learn more from your mistakes than from your successes so it was a very interesting time we grew very quickly Honda Tankate uh, had a good sponsorship factory Hondas and uh, cigarette sponsoring was still around there so as long as I could explain to Garrett Tankate why I needed this particular sensor or that or that data logger we were you could buy it immediately there was no no problem with with the budget in that way I just needed to be able to explain it carefully why I needed it and then we could buy it so great learning years so you went from data logging to um, crew chiefing uh, how do because normally uh, well a lot of crew chiefs tend to come through suspension because they, they if you look at uh, look at them they're all suspension yeah, yeah. Carter, yeah you're uh, right lot, lots yeah. of, uh, it's either suspension or data recording yeah, it's one yeah, of yeah. these two uh, because both of them have more in common than you would think actually one you get your hands more dirty than the others but in both <laughs> cases you're really close with the riders and you need to be informed about everything because everything has an influence on your suspension and in data recording you see the, efflu- the influence of everything coming together in all your lines and reports and numbers so uh, if you're a tire guy you need to take care of the tires it's quite a job don't underestimate it but you don't need to think about uh, the mapping because that's a real different thing but if you think if you need to make decisions about the suspension 
you need to speak to everybody in the team, not just the rider. You need to know the character of the engine. You need the gearing. You need, you need even the fairing for the downfall. So you need to talk to everybody. So if you do that for a couple of years, at some point you're able, you're able to do all these jobs in one and suddenly you're a crew chief. <laughs> <laughs> um, who was the first person you were a crew chief for? It was like a mixed, a mixed combination with Stefan Bradl in 2010 and 11 in Moto 2. I was in World Supersport Superbike, like I said, with Tenkate, and uh, from there I went to one year to Ducati as a, they call it an electronic guy. So you're the guy that's responsible for all the electronic systems on the superbikes. It was AMA uh, championship with uh, Neil Hudson and Ben Bostrom. So factory bikes, proper factory bikes, proper factory support and everything. But I learned there that this position was not really the best for me. That's a real proper electronic guy, as they say in Italy. And you're responsible for all the electronic systems. That was a bit more um, theoretically difficult for me because I didn't do a lot of schooling. I was like a self-made man. Yeah. Uh, so I found I found the limits of what I also from what I was willing to learn. Yeah. Because you needed to study really deep in inside electronics and CPUs and stuff. And I, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, really interested in that. I want to know about the rider and the bike. So after that year with Ducati, I went to Yamaha World Supersport for three years. Actually, that was the year I met Carl Kurtzlow because our last year he was our rider and we, we won finally the championship with that bike. Um, from there, I was already involved, thanks to Wilco Zellenberg, was the manager coming there for the Yamaha team at that time. He was uh, a little bit typically Dutch, uh, saying, okay, you're the data guy and there's a crew chief in the other corner maybe, but we all, have to share our information with each other and everybody who has a good idea put it on the table and we just choose the best mm -hmm. so it's not just crew chief who decides it's, it's typically Dutch actually that way of thinking and I learned there that I'm actually half a crew chief already <laughs> and uh, so from there on I went to Moto2 because Moto2 came there was uh, four strokes I had some experience with it so there was like a little demand for people who have experience especially with engine braking and stuff in four strokes that was new to the guys in the GPs yeah, yeah. coming from two strokes that was a really difficult that, thing for the, most of the teams. That was the biggest difference yeah. for riders, for teams, yeah, for everyone. Yeah, yeah. A lot of teams wasted a lot of time trying to make it a two-stroke. <laughs> so we didn't do that <laughs> because I came from the four-strokes and, uh, and we had a really good rider, a good budget with the Kiefer Asian team. So uh, quite early we were successful in that. That was a, It's more the two, but I was able to do crew chief and data recording at the same time. But I have to be to be honest. It's not like the crew chief in this. In most cases, also in that case of me, it's, the crew chief doesn't make all the decisions by himself. He's not like the only guy who knows everything. He's just more or less in the center of all the information. So he has to have a really good relationship with the rider to understand his feelings, his emotions. Some riders has, need a lot of words to say something that is not important, and the other way around. So yeah. you need to understand your rider first to to give a number to your problem, to qualify your problem. You need to understand your rider first. Um, but then you need to speak to your to a tire guy, whether it's Zundel Popirelli that you're racing with, your, your suspension guy, we have an Erland guy in the box, and then mix all that information together with the data recording, and then you make your decision. So you don't need to be a specialist in everything, but just enough informed. And that's where I found out uh, that was the job that I liked really the most. Data recording and crew chief could be done in the early days of Moto2 by one guy. If you have a plan, be prepared, it was possible and was a really, really good fun to do. Um... You mentioned electronics there. What's the that uh, when you work in the AMA, you were you know working on the electronics, and, and but you found that that was that you know it was too big, it was too much, it was wasn't your special. 
this I think is a common misconception between what is the electronics there's the data logging side and there's the and then the, there's the electronics side can you explain that in a simple way yeah we, yeah it's a good uh, a good comment David because we call it all electronics and basically they're very very different uh, what we now call still electronics is everything let me let me put it the other way a data guy is usually the guy uh, that takes care of all the data is responsible that all the data is accurate it means all your sensors are calibrated right they're zeroed well all the information is sure and um, is on the server to waiting for the guy that needs it it can be an engine guy that can be a sassy guy so if you are a data guy your first responsibility is make sure all the data is accurate all your calculations that you've done with all your data is is really there and is and is accurate that's the first step and a really electronic guy in reality now is the guy who sets up the ECU um, this means that he makes sure that engine runs but yeah. also all the strategies that come with the engine nowadays with the drive by wire with all the torque maps and the throttle maps and stuff um, that's a lot of work. You need a lot of laptops in the back of the truck. You don't need all of them in the pit box. You don't see so many, like you've been in many pit boxes. Yeah. In the front of the pit box, there's not many laptops. There's usually okay. one. And that's usually also almost like a friend of the rider because they, they make they are the first in line. Yeah. They need to make the first decisions and the first troubleshooting. But then behind the wall, even in the pit box, is already a line of laptops. Yeah. And if you get in one of the trucks, there's another row of laptops of people doing work in the background. You need a lot of laptops to keep these bikes up and running because there's so much adjustability. It's not easy to say who is an electronic guy. In, when we speak about MotoGP, there's a lot of people, they have different responsibilities. He's only looking in this, this part of the data, he's only looking at that part of the data. The guy who is in front of the pit box usually is called an, an application engineer. So he gets all the maps and all the settings from the guys from the back of the pit box. Yeah. He has to put them in the bike. Just to avoid confusion, there's one guy funneling all that information, he is connected to the bike because otherwise everybody walks with a laptop to the bike, put his setting in it, another engine brake, another strategy, yeah. can't do that. So one guy is actually not making these strategies himself, but he is application engineer. Yeah, That's yeah. the guy you see. He gets a lot of fame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's very popular. He's with his laptop on the grid as well. Yeah. But behind him are a lot more of laptops working. So nowadays, if we speak about MotoGP, you need a lot of computing power to keep these bikes up and running. So it's not, not so easy to say who's an electronic guy. Well, maybe I did it, or more or less. The data guy is another guy. That's the guy who quickly, uh, and also that's not one guy, he has to go quickly through the data in steps to sort out, to check out what is what needs to be checking now. And obviously they have a lot of analyzing programs and possibility to quickly go through a lot of what we call safety items. If the bike comes in, in a couple of seconds, all the data flies in the laptops, in the computers. The first thing you always do, because these are very precious and expensive bikes and engines, so first thing is what we call reliability or, or, or safety you know everything oil pressures and stuff like that it, temperatures and pressures exactly that you don't even need to check for yourself if the line was of the temperature was too high or too low you've got lots of parts of your program that does it automatically for you and gives you all sorts of warnings if that's the case um, then there is a, the first in line is for example take a Friday morning take a Friday morning the rider comes in goes out uh, got out of the box for the first five six seven laps and he comes in with his first impression it's usually a year he was on this track before they started usually with the new bike based on what they learned last year and his first impressions from the rider could be for example fifth gear is too long uh, not enough engine brake for that turn 
and then you quickly need to be able to work in your laptop uh, check these things from the rider if you can see his problem if you can see if he is very vocal about it you see it happening in the data which is not always the case then you quickly make a small change in some direction to, to already feel something for the direction because but most of the work you do in between the sessions you don't do a lot of, of electronic changes in uh, during during the stop in the pit box having said that they have a couple of so-called maps which contains of a lot of different other maps so yeah. maybe you can what they usually do is uh, the most likely good setting is how they leave the box and already the riders are told if tangent brake is too much because maybe the grip level is not what you expected go immediately to map two if it's still not enough go to map three if you need more traction control go to map four so there's already four five six options under the buttons yeah that's usually enough to get you uh, through the session right basically uh, to find the, uh, the the ballpark, the place where yes. you need to be working. Exactly, yeah, that's yeah. what you're doing. And then after the, straight after the session, there is usually two meetings with the rider. Both of them are very important in a different way. The first one is the most emotional one, depending who your rider is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, probably not the owner, but uh, some riders are really, really very emotional. And th these emotions, uh, you have to filter them a little bit, but. But if you understand your rider very well, sometimes it means nothing special, he's always emotional, or sometimes you have to pay attention. Maybe he doesn't express himself very accurate, but something is really, really bothering him. So the first sit down, when he just still has his leathers on, just helmet off, is usually not more than 10, 12 minutes. That's the first debrief you do. From that, the, everybody's listening, tire guys, suspension guys, electronic guys, crew chief, first of all. Yeah. Usually, when the rider leaves, these group of people stay together. They, they, they talk a little bit with each other and already divide some tasks. Who's going to look deeper? Because it looks a lot like it's a tire problem. Now it looks more like electronic. Yeah, it could be electronic. I was thinking already, and then they decide the job. Uh, when the rider has uh, take a shower, he comes back, they sit down a little bit longer because then they already see something in the data, I have more questions from the rider. Yeah. Are you sure you felt this? Because I see it also here and here and here. And after showering, he sometimes uh, lost some of his first emotions, but he sometimes remembers more when he sits down calmly, it comes more back to him, especially yeah, so, the good riders. Yeah, exactly, because the first, the first one that we you described the first you know off the bike sitting in the corner that's the one which you get to see on tv yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the one with the gesticulations <laughs> and the shouting and exactly, the uh, yeah. and the uh, uh, and the emotional faces because you can truly read the the emotions yes, on, the, uh, yes. on, the, on the faces but that's the one where you are um I mean, how do you use the different ones? Because as you say, you know, riders go away, they have a shower, they've got, they, they calm down, they lose the adrenaline and they can be a little bit more analytic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do you use the information from those two different debrief sessions? Well, the first, like I said, is the, like you also said, and what you see is the most emotional one. And the first one is used to find the direction of the problem. Because uh, some riders, they feel problems, they are frustrated, but they cannot pinpoint it accurately because let's be honest David these bikes are hugely complicated until a couple of years ago it was possible to say that's a tire that's mechanical grip but now yeah. it can can quite likely be electronics yeah, yeah, yeah and it can really really feel like ah, oh, I'm losing the rear all the time as soon as it touches throttle it's just no side grip but can be electronics eh? yeah and the other way around so we usually you don't ask riders what is the problem you just say please tell me your emotions tell me what you feel you pay attention you ask him to pay a lot of attention when he's on the bike try to remember everything give me your emotions give me your feelings give me even probably your suggestion but it's our job 
to make out of the mix of poss possible problems, take the one that is most likely the real one. So the first one also is to give a number to your problem, because honestly, you always have a problem. Yeah. When yeah, you're yeah. not in P1 and two seconds before number two, which never happens, you have a problem. Because right, racing is final, it's always scary. Yeah. So that's actually the fact that it's scary causes the most emotions. Because these guys have just done whatever 12, 15 laps in the session, maybe even 20 sessions, and most of them are on the limit. You know, it's life dangerous. Yes. So yeah. they have seen a lot of emotions. Yeah. Even when you're calm and composed, it's a lot of emotions that, that go through your head. So in the first couple of minutes, they tend to exaggerate stuff a lot and they are, they are just moving wildly and the eyes are rolling around and stuff like that. But like I said, you need to qualify, quantify your problem. If you're always in the top five, and the rider comes in and has a lot of problems complaining about the bike, but he's in P3, just 0.2 behind the guy in front, then maybe your problem is not that big. Yeah. If he's in P15, missing two seconds and already risked his life a couple of times and was nearly on the ground, there is a big problem. Yeah. So you have to look at the whole picture and his emotions are part of it. Not, not the only one, especially some South European riders, they're always exaggerating wildly and there's always really big problems and maybe if, if I, coming from North Europe, I would, if I didn't know that and you listen to, to South European riders in the first five minutes after the session, you will be thinking the bike is really crap. You're completely lost for the whole weekend, but it's just his emotions. Yeah. He comes back from the shower, sits down and now we start to talk more in detail. So you have to filter it a little bit. This is one of the reasons that the crew chief uh, is so important nowadays for a rider because so many decisions need to be made in very short time. And that's when it counts if you have a really good relationship with each other. If you understand each other very, very well. Not just trust, but also understand. Yeah. yeah because that's quite important because there is so little time. Because that certainly to me is one of the most fascinating things. Yes. That relationship, because you have to, you have to not just listen to what the rider says, but also understand what he wants to say, what he means. Yes, exactly, exactly. What, what he, and filter the bits, you know, the bits that he's really upset exactly, about. Exactly, Because that's, again, uh, you might think, well, you've got all these sensors on the bike, you've got all this data, you can just figure out what the bike is doing. But that's, uh, and you see sometimes some factories... Uh, Approaching it like that. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. historically, uh, this was the problem at Ducati. The Ducati, the Ducati engineers will say, but it looks fine in the data. What are you complaining yeah, about? Yeah. And it will, they, yeah. they're not taking into account that riders yes. were having to really push well beyond their, their, their own personal limits exactly. to actually, uh, to actually yeah. do that. There is no line, there's lots of lines in data to go on. There's no line about your self-confidence. Yeah. And uh, But a motorbike is so much more complicated than a car. Just most of our data recording tricks and stuff and sensors come from cars and all yeah. the know-how. But in a car it's relatively easy because everything is fixed. The only thing that's not really fixed is the rider's head with his helmet. Yeah. So basically everything's fixed. This means you can simulate uh, and calculate everything. Before the car team goes to a track, they know if the grip level is this, the lap time has to be that. And you can be one, two tenths off from it, but not more. Because they calculate, and they are true. That's true, but a motorbike is like a fighter plane, David. Yeah. Because a motorbike has a very short wheelbase, it has a lot of pitch, and uh, a big part of the total weight sits on top of it, is the human. Yeah. And he's moving with his body and compensating for problems. And especially with young talents, they compensate for problems without even realizing they're compensating. So you don't see the problem in the data. I'll give you an example. We are in here in Assen. 
if I take one bike of one fast ride and I open completely the compression damper from the front fork, maybe even take out uh, all the preload from the front fork, a young talented rider will go out the pit lane and he will notice in his outlap that the front fork is quite soft. With his instinct or with his talent, when he will start to push for a good lap, he will not be very aggressive on the front brake. He will roll off the throttle, grab a little bit of brake and then squeeze it. Yeah. In us, actually, you can still do a good lap time that way because there's only two corners where it hurts. So he rides around the problem. He's very young and talented, so he didn't notice, didn't think enough about what he was doing, doesn't tell it to us. And on day they think it's good. I have a normal dive speed, I have a normal suspension position. Until I put a really good rider on it. He goes out and says, whoa, I have to be very careful with the brakes because if I take the brakes as I needed to, the bike's completely tying itself in knots. Ah. So this is one of the examples that bikes are so hard to measure. If a rider compensates, hangs off differently with his body, suddenly there's more possible or less possible. That's why I like a lot that riders are very active with their body. Yeah. Because you can, you have an influence. It's not bad to be a little bit bigger. It's actually a good thing. Like Rossi probably has the ideal figure for that because he's very light, but still he has length. Yeah. So he can put the weight where he wants it. He's got long limbs. He got this is, this is something which uh, I interviewed Mike Leitner uh, oh, probably 10 years ago um, uh, talking about Danny Pedrosa because at the time everyone said oh, it's Danny. not fair. Yeah, yeah it, it's not fair. But, uh, you know, Pedrosa's so light, he has so much advantage, you know, or in acceleration and all the rest. He has some, but also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Leitner used to get very, very uh, upset about yeah, it because yeah, he said, yeah. you can't see what he's having to do to create exactly. grip because he doesn't have a mechanical grip and he can't, exactly. he can't move himself around exactly. uh, on the bike. So yeah. he, he can't actually use the advantages of, of over. Uh, Overriding. Also riding, compensating, you know, yeah. some bikes, depending on some corners, like we are again here in Assen, some corners are really banked, old school banked. Yeah. And if you fly into a banked corner, it's really scary. Yeah. Because you can break a lot later than you than you dare, than you yeah. believe. But you have to do it. But from the moment that you finally turn in there, you need to do something different with your body. You need yeah. to put it quickly in another area. And you can because you have the length. Danny, poor Danny cooked. Yeah. Always yeah, has yeah. to sit. You're already happy that you reach the bars. So he doesn't have this extra room to play with, which was definitely a disadvantage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when um, one of the reasons Mike Leitner hired Mika Calio as a test rider for KTM. Another small guy. Yeah, because he was a small guy, because he learned, he, he saw that uh, um, Rose had to be very, very precise with the bike because he had to let the bike yeah. do the work. And yeah. so he also had to understand much better what the bike was doing. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. These guys have to be extra sensitive and they have to be very special in other areas to compensate for their lack of length. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, at some point you will run into troubles if you only have small test riders because some riders can make the last step to the podium if you put a longer rider on them. Yeah, yeah. Because the bike in the end is always a compromise. Yeah. So you cannot make a bike that is working on every corner from every track perfectly. So and the corners where it does not want to, you have to force it more or less. I mean, look at Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark does lean angles that nobody does because when he does for a very short time these extreme lean angles is when he's more or less controlled crashing. Yeah. He lets the bike turn by crashing it slowly. Yes. You have to be able to do that, eh? Yeah. yeah. So, and if Honda improves the bike, he will still do it again, just with yeah. more lean angle, because he's Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, which is Honda's problem. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, when the bike comes into the box, um, you plug your laptop in, get the data off. Um, what's, 
obviously the first thing you look at is the the, 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 the safety issues is the thing going to go bang um, in the next uh, in the next session um, what's the first thing you look at do you have a particular list that you go through or is it more that you have to listen to what the rider says first and then base your decision no, after that? we've done the safety and reliability items there is there is like a list and depends where you are in the weekend for example uh, if it's Saturday morning and you decided Friday afternoon in a meeting that you will put in a, a different third gear and a shorter fifth to compensate for this and you know it has a downside probably overall it will be better then it's for sure the first thing you're going to look at the next morning when the bike comes in on data you speak to the rider about it you will look at it on data but what you were well, how, i mean how yeah. do you how do you look at data what are you looking at ah, you okay know, just, yeah. just speed or um uh acceleration you know uh, there is so much information coming from these sensors that yeah. you have to group it. Yeah. You have to group it and have these groups uh, making sense. To so if you've changed the third, of the, so say you've yeah, changed the yeah, third yeah. and the fifth gear, you've grouped something because it's something you want to check. What, what, what are you grouping? Everything that has think? to do with that decision. So yeah, yeah. for example, I have 20, 30 sort of template layouts on my laptop that all that are all for one particular group in this yeah. case we speak about gearing yeah and you put everything to do that has to do with the gearing which is two wheel speeds which is the rpm which is the gear position probably the slip clutch as well brake and throttle yeah very simple um, you can add to that same page that opens automatically you just push the word gearing and you have all the information about the gearing from your fastest lap uh, but you can also make it pop up with an XI plot that explains also the relationship between the RPMs and the speed. Yeah. You can even make a histogram about how much time for each lap in pressure you spent in each gear. Yeah. You can make an automatic calculation that calculates the time lost between because of shifting, how many more shifts he has to do per lap, how much of a hundredth of a second or tenth is that costing us. So all the information that has to do with shifting, you prepare it before on your computers. That's what you do at home usually. And then you have all these layouts ready to work with when when it's battle time because yeah. in the box it's more or less like battle time yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to quickly go through so I, there's lots of pages about suspension slipper clutches whatever whatever even for crash you have complete layouts that have all the information you usually look at when you're looking at a crash and there's engine mapping for example temperatures lambdas everything that has to do with that lots of throttle uh, information because there's lots of throttles on bikes yeah. nowadays there's at least three of them so you have to be aware. At least and, three of them? Uh, well, at least three. Yeah, yeah. that's the, the three basic things. You have the rider, we could usually call it grip. That's, yeah. that's his right hand, what he's asking from the bike. Yeah. Fortunately, he doesn't always get what he asks because he will fly. Yeah. That's why we have throttle maps in it. Yeah. But also the the, the whole butterfly unit, you yeah. call it the throttle body, the throttle body the is throttle it, body, yes. is usually, because uh, we speak about four cylinders, usually it's split. Yeah. Sometimes automatically because it's a V4, sometimes it's an inline four, then you still split it. Yeah. And you, you work these two sets of butterflies separately from the issue. How you work them is your strategy. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. one of your torque maps yeah. or your throttle maps, yeah. what you do with it. That's why you can hear engines sometimes sounds like a three cylinder, a two cylinder, a four cylinder, but it's still a four, it was always a four cylinder. Yeah. But it starts to run like a two cylinder mid corner. Take a Yamaha, just a production bike, R1. If you see these bikes with full lean angle here on the track, there's loads of them here, and listen to them when the rider picks up the throttle with a lot of lean angle, it sounds like a two cylinder. Basically he is, because he's missing sparks and he's opening only two butterflies. The yeah. other two stay closed. They follow shoot, depending yeah. on the strategy from the issue. 
And these guys here cannot set it a lot. They can play a little bit inside what Yamaha gives them in the ECU, which is a very, very little bit. But the bike's already good as it is. But as soon as you speak about MotoGP, you need a lot of laptop to keep all that stuff in gear, to keep that in line. Um, so basically, the, the, what, you're, what you're checking depends on what session it is, what you've changed, where you're yep. expecting yep. your problems. Exactly. To give you an idea, Friday usually is about making some sashi uh, and sashi suspension bike setup changes, and then it comes comes already down to tires. Yeah. Doing longer runs with tires and checking your tires. That's yeah. another data thing, eh? Because we have sensors that measure the temperature and the pressure, and even the temperature of the carcass inside. And you yeah. have to work with that data and keep very very good note of the performance of these tires, because that will go to that famous question for Sunday: which tire yeah. on the grid? Finally, they're still. And it's still, it's usually, it still, it ends up being sort of a gamble, yeah. but at least calculated gamble. The more you study your data. Yes. Yeah. So you're always looking to, yeah. to basically you're you're looking to minimize the wrong decisions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, things have changed a lot in how long have you been doing this? Nearly twenty years. Twenty years. Yeah. Uh, the just the amount of data has changed. Massive. What, yeah, how did it, I mean, what was it like when you started and what's it like now? I mean, and, and what were the really big changes in between? Uh, the big change is since the full drive by wire comes. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really big. Because now there is, a, there is really, there is a re literally a computer between the rider's brain and the rear tire and yeah. the engine so that's that's a lot and, and uh, that that's a big big change uh, to work with and in in my younger years when data recording was also quite young on motorbikes it was you were just happy if you i, I remember even fitting the first brake pressure sensor it was like wow now we can see the brake pressure which was a big eye-opener actually very very important but it was not even a common thing in 2000 2003 4 it was just starting to see the brake pressure sensor but without brake pressure sensor i don't want to look open a laptop anymore there's no point <laughs> if I if I need to look at somebody's data without his throttle and his brake, there's no point looking at it. Because still brake is so important. You need to see the brake pressure. How he builds up the brake pressure and what happens when he does it. So it's a simple sensor, what, but it's still there. What were you doing before the brake pressure? Looking at suspension? Catching it. Oh. He's closing the throttle, so he must be braking. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the speeds goes down, but how much they go down? Hard to say. Yeah. You know, now you know why. But well, let me give you an example. In the beginning, we were just happy that we had some sensors, and the reading of the sensors was quite, like, roughly. You know, suspension sensors were not very, very accurate inside, uh, but also the capacities from the electronic side, from, from the data recording system, were very basic. Sometimes you were looking at throttle and or RPM traces, with, which were locked, like measured with 10 hatch, 10 times a second, looking at RPM, that's quite rough. That's yeah. not very accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will miss points. Yeah. So even with throttle and brake, you need to have the, the right frequency. So in the beginning, loggers were big, heavy, and couldn't do anything. Now it's the opposite. You look, like look at your phone. Yes. So now loggers are amazing. What they can do, they are very very small, and the data trans, uh, you know, transmitting the data is very very quickly. So we went from just a couple of signals which were not very accurate to to what we still have now is uh, a lot of sensors and also a lot of extra signals that are created coming from sensors. So even with only 10 sensors on the bike, you still can end up with 50 signals. Yes. To give you an example, you can you can calculate accelerations, but usually you don't use an acceleration sensor, you just calculate. 
if we have a suspension sensor, it's only measuring speed. And because we have a clock in the data recorder, we can see the we can see the not only just sorry it, it is measuring position and yeah. because we have a clock we can calculate it into speed and yeah. even into acceleration from suspension and that's when things get interesting because you want to see if you want to get 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 an idea of the damping qualities of your bike you need to see speeds in the suspension and you need to see accelerations from the wheels that's why the last couple of years you see them uh, coming more and more even in race weekends, not only in test weekend, you see everywhere small accelero sensors. Yeah. So close to the wheel pin, at the front and rear wheel there's an accelero sensor and usually the other side of the suspension, which is under the rider's ass, or it's uh, at the lower triple clamp. And everything that happens in between is absorbed in the suspension. Right. And so these sensors are becoming very, very important, but they are difficult, very difficult to, to use wisely and accurately. So basically, you've got two sensors, two accelerometers, uh, and you're measuring the difference between them. And based exactly. on that, that allows you to yeah. understand what the suspension is yes. doing. Because, yes. all right, they're getting close together. It means the front is... Uh, the, it's compressing. It's compressing, and it's moving quite slowly. So the damping is probably okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's going a wrong way. So yeah. we might want to put a little bit more preload or a little bit Give more... Give you an example, uh, a real-life example. Um, on Superstock 1000 bikes, because they are based from bikes that you can buy in the showroom, it's not all high-end level parts that are on it. So Superstock bikes run a stock front fork. You can change the cartridge, yeah. but out and in the tube are still stock. There's a lot of flex in there. Yeah. But if you put really grippy tires on them and a good rider, it's too good for the fork. Yeah. So I don't want to give a name or a manufacturer because all of them have their good and bad years. But we found, for example, one bike that had uh, suspiciously very little suspension in the movement somewhere i mean this fork will do 130 millimeter but a couple of times a lap usually around 95 to 110 millimeter it will sort of sit fixed in one position mm -hmm. so we see the suspension position not changing actually of course uh, the speed inside the suspension was also zero but it's only when we started to fit accelero sensors to it i could see the difference then you could see that uh, everything that happens in the wheel pin exactly trans happens also in the triple clamp, so in the rider's hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It means the fork was just locked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, you just, know, it was just... Justiction completely uh, Yeah, exactly. It was not working in a straight line anymore. It was just locking up completely. Yeah. This means on date that it looks like, oh, everything's calm in the suspension. Because but suspension is not moving, but the bike was moving like hell. Yeah. And the rider goes crazy, you know, arm pump, tired, no, no confidence in the front. If the fork's not moving, everything has to come from the tire. Yeah, exactly. Which is another thing that we don't measure. Yeah. It's a spring with some damping, but we don't measure it. It's one of the few things we don't measure. That's why that's why we need to do, we, everybody, especially MotoGP, need to do so many laps and look at the performance from the tire from another point of view, because you don't really measure it. You have to use a proxy, so you have to measure uh, where temperature yes pressure yeah and where is uh, so if you accurately always follow the temperatures and the pressure from that tire and you set it against the performance of the tire and um, confirm that with the riders feeling because sometimes tires can perform really good on data recorder but the rider don't like them yeah yeah because the way he loses grip when he loses grip is scary yeah Forget about it. You can't ride that tire in the in, in its zone, you know, in the limit. Yeah. Because it it will kill you. Yeah. But just before that point, great can the grip can be amazing. So yeah. the rider doesn't really like it because he gets a couple of warnings every lap. But we like it on data because there's a lot of G forces. You know, there's there's a good tire, there's there's performance. But he doesn't like it. So no, you exactly. always need to go back to to the rider. Or in this case, 
uh, you just take the tire, the, the throttle, especially his throttle, his grip. If he's having to close a lot of time during the opening phase, that something's wrong. You know, if you exit the corner, the rider needs to be... You, the ideal situation is when he decided he can start to open the throttle, and it's not a Moto3, because Moto3, the throttle is a switch. You know, it's yeah, either yeah, open yeah. or it's closed. Yeah, yeah. But with big bikes, where you have way too much power anyway, yeah. throttle from the rider has to be linear. It means he starts to open it, generally feeding it, feeding it, and in a linear movement, he goes to 100%. Yeah. Now, the real throttle can bounce a little bit behind him, because there's all sorts of really controlled traction controls and so on. But if the rider already starts to... Just before, imagine exiting here the GT chicane in Asso, it has the start-finish straight. If you exit that one, and just before 100% throttle, you have to close it again and open it. Yeah. Ha, drive's gone, three people will fly past, and you have no lap time. Yeah. Because that's a really vital point. Yeah. So if a rider does that, then as a data guy, you need to start to think, okay, he doesn't want to do that, but he does it. If he does it every two laps, there is a problem. It can either be he doesn't uh, like the way the, the tire loses its grip and is trying to spit him off, or the bike runs wide. Yeah. Can, I don't see on data, where, I can see actually where the bike is on data, but that doesn't mean I can see that it's going towards the grass, because they're always ending up over the ripple strip anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if he is on 75, 80% throttle and he realizes he can't make it on the tarmac alone, then he hesitates a little bit with the throttle to hold that line that he has now, and then he opens it again. If I see that a couple of times per lap, something's wrong. Either the rider is sleeping, he's over-aggressive, opening too early, or something is holding him back. And this is the interesting thing, David, that when I explain it to you, I realize it again by myself. The interesting thing is that you look at a lot of data from a lot of angles, but still you have to speak with the rider. Yeah. yeah. Or she cameras, especially speak with the rider. And then you start to see the whole picture. And that, in a nutshell, is the difference with a car. Yeah. Because in a car, you measure all your all your acceleration forces in every dimension. And then you see, ah, oh, you're not using enough of the grip by, by when you break into the corners or you're overusing your grip on the first part of the throttle. You can see it and it's true. There's no debate about it. You just tell your rider, you're wrong there, wrong there, wrong there. Go out, try, try harder. With bikes... You can see something that is not correct, like a rider not braking immediately full pressure or opening the throttle, hesitating and then opening again. But it's too easy to say, ah, he's doing a shit job. Yeah. Maybe he's doing it because the bike uh, scares him. Yes. Or doesn't do something really weird. Yeah. I mean, give him a shopper, he will break into turn one here, he will open it at the usual place and he will forget about opening it any further. Because <laughs> it's a shopper, it will run wide. Yeah. <laughs> So this is, the, this is the nice thing, everything comes together. And that's why if you're a data guy, and but you also have an understanding of how the bike moves around the track and also, you know, can be more or less think like a rider or at yeah. least has an idea what riders are doing, uh, then, then you're pretty complete. Do and you have to be, I mean, to go into data, do you have to be a, do you have to have ridden a motorbike? Yeah. Or do you just have to understand what a yeah, motorbike yeah, does? Yeah, you have to have, you have to have, you have to have some experience being on the bike. Uh, that helps a lot, a yeah, lot, yeah, a yeah. lot, a lot. For example, even track day guys here that are circling around the track now while we're speaking, they go 20 seconds usually slower than good guys. So, but even in their head, because that's, for him it's the limit. Yeah. Maybe if Rossi is doing 135 here, he's more relaxed than some guys doing 155. Yeah. Because you're riding to your limit, yeah. and everything happens quite quickly. So, if Rossi arrives for turn one, he grabs the brake, quickly shifts down three times, dangling his leg at the same time, playing with the clutch probably as well, and then deciding where to 
put, to turn in. But this happens in a couple of tens of seconds. Yeah. For these guys, usually that's too fast. Yeah. So they start a little bit early with the braking. They take more time for the downshifting. They're not sure where they turn in, but the speed is so high, they usually start to turn in too early because that's a survival instinct. Yeah. You brake as late as you dare, and when you think it's really late, at the moment you brake, you start already to turn in. That's what no humans doing. Yeah. <laughs> you want to survive. Yeah. Because <laughs> you arrive pretty fast on turn one. Yeah. And then the whole sequence of problems start because you enter too early. That's all the problems that has to come from the exit, usually come from entry. That's another one that I learned with, from working with good riders. Lots of exit problems starting on the entry. So the, will, will the rider also, in that case, complain about uh, problems at, on, on entry? No, or will unfortunately they... not. Okay. Unfortunately, only some of them, the older, more experienced one, will say, but it's already on the entry that I can't do what I need to do. I should stay out more, longer outside. I should be able to brake later, stay out for a longer time and then when I dive into that corner by the time I'm at the apex and I grab the throttle the bike will be in the right position pointing in the right direction but I can't do that because the bike doesn't want to turn so I brake early I start I need so much time to turn this bike again let's say it's a shopper yeah so it doesn't turn quickly yeah so you need to start to go to the apex too early by the time you arrive at the apex uh, your bike points in the wrong direction yeah. because you're too early there yeah now you can only do a lap time in that case if you have a qualifier because you need to open and turn at the same time something you want to avoid with big bikes yeah. it's either turning in rolling or accelerating but you can't turn and accelerate and still make the corner that's it's not easy to do so you're asking a lot from your bike if you want to do that that's but most people they notice the problem on the exit that's another one that, that is really interesting that comes up now and you would say it has nothing to do with data regarding but in a way everything is connected. Not many riders notice how much they lose on the brakes. You have to still, you have to show me the first rider that says I'm not really good on braking. <laughs> and that's not because they're stupid. But what we do as humans is we follow somebody with our eyes, we see yeah. the distance in meters. And even if we arrive for turn one in us here and I'm 20 meters behind somebody if I break earlier than him I still will, will approach him during the braking area so I break earlier than him I'm surely losing lap time but in the beginning until the mid corner I'm just closing in on him so one thing I know for sure I'm good on the brakes yeah, 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 yeah. and then suddenly he opens and disappears I opens I don't disappear so he has a better engine <laughs> but it's not like that most of the time is lost on the brakes yeah you're, you're spending a lot of times, sometimes even more, you spend at least more time on the brakes than you're on full throttle. That's for sure. Yeah. Actually with every bike, let yeah. alone MotoGP. Yeah. So there's more to gain in the braking than on the opening. Especially with all the good electronics with the big bikes, the opening is not taking care of itself. Fortunately, our electronics in MotoGP are not that good as they were, fortunately. Yeah. But still, you're spending more time, percentage per lap on the brakes than you do on the gas. So you better make sure your bike breaks. Yeah. Ask Dobie. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, he knows. Yeah, this is something, uh, because a lot of the time you have, especially conversation with fans, and the fans will always say, are oh, these, you know, modern bikes are much easier, they've got the- uh, the traction controls. Traction and control yeah. solves all the problems, but it's always seemed to me like the biggest steps have been made in engine brake, in, in, actually, in actually controlling the brake, the, the, the shortening the braking distance yes. and that's but that's been where the biggest yeah, yeah, where yeah, the yeah, biggest yeah. gains have been made at the moment yes that's why they uh, they sorted out the traction control more or less within the electronic possibilities we have and again let's be happy that they're not unlimited 
that was a lot better before the spec uh, software and the spec hardware that we have in MotoGP now. Yeah. There was a lot more sophistication in the issues going on and it was not riding completely by itself, but close to that. So fortunately, we don't have that anymore. With these issues, there's not a lot more they can gain with traction control. There's a lot coming down to the rider. There is still some help, but not crazy. So there's a lot more now. Now they are focusing on the time that can be won or is lost during the braking area. Like I said, you spend more time on the brakes than on full throttle. Yeah. So you better make sure you can brake really late and in a short time. And these engines, these, these high compression four-stroke engines, they have so much negative torque on, on the rear tire. You better try to use it. There is some... There is something to be said to use it, um, but use it wisely is, is not that easy. So, first of all, we need to keep the rear tire on the ground for effective braking. Secondly, because... Which is why you would fit a tire cooler to the... Uh, yeah, to, to, yeah, to for the example, for example, for example, that's what they do. So you want to have the rear tire on the ground, otherwise it's pretty useless for, for helping you with braking. And then it's not a stable brake um, because it goes down with the RPM. And, it's like a mirror image of the torque from your engine. Yeah. That's why if you have a perfectly good balanced bike, perfectly balanced issues, a really good engine brake, and you tune the engine again, some extra five horsepower, probably you will have more problems in engine brake than you have in, in, in under acceleration. Because the, the negative torque is like a mirror image of, the, of a model of the engine. Yeah. And you have to feed that into the issue. Ideally, you would completely feed it in the issue and let it take care of it, but you can't. At the moment, we cannot because we're not allowed with the spec software. So they have to find a way to use the electronics as good as they can and have it down to the right, be able to do it. First thing that, that was a good step in engine brake was the blipper. We call it the blipper. Yeah. That you, first of all, you have the seamless box. Both ways seamless is not unimportant. So yeah. there is no sudden hiccups and hesitations when you downshift. Yeah. You know, in old days, it was the rider shifting down with the foot, uh, using the clutch and blipping the throttle himself. Which, if you're, if you're careful and very skilled, it can be very smooth. And it has the advantage that you can anticip anticipate for the situation. You arrive on a wet patch, you do it differently. Yeah. If there's no wet patch, you do it again differently. And yeah. issue doesn't know if there's a wet patch. Yeah. But if you're if you're there as a rider and you control everything by hand, it's not so bad. But not many riders are capable. And the riders that are coming now up to the ranks, the young kids that come now in MotoGP, they didn't really do that long enough. Use the clutch for downshifting themselves because the Cured Moto 2s already have blippers. They, yeah. So you only need to use your feet and you cannot uh, learn anything with the clutch. So in MotoGP, they don't use the clutch yeah. Yeah, to leave the pit box, that's it. Yeah. So engine braking is first of all done by, uh, by a very good system that, that opens the throttle. And it opens it, it blips it open and down if you downshift. And after the, middle, after the real downshift, which it, it opens shortly to whatever, 15% or something, then it keeps opening, it keeps staying open the real throttle a little bit. So the rider has the throttle closed and he's braking. The rear wheel is still touching the ground with very, very, very low force. And depending on that position, we give or not give him more or less engine brake. So the issue is all the time trying to adjust the engine brake and it does it by the butterflies, by the, the yeah. throttle body. 
yeah, so again, you, it helps to have two sets there to do that. Right, so you'll, you'll be giving maybe a two, three, four percent? Oh, more. Um, you will be surprised. Okay. Uh, so you have to open a lot. On high RPM, when there is so much engine brake, they open it to 15, 16 percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't believe it. If you will do that, you mean that's, that's a proper opening. Yes. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> you can already, you do, yeah, yeah, you can do a lot of speed yeah. with that on acceleration already. So to calm it down, these high compression engines, they, you have to shortly open them a lot. And then you follow the RPM if you brake and you have shifted down three times and you're in the last gear. So let's say you arrive from six, five, four, three. Yeah. And in third gear, it's following the ramp of the RPM. So the RPM are dropping with the speed of the bike. And also at that time, the amount of engine brake that is transmitted to the rear wheel is dropping. Yeah. And the issue has to follow that perfectly. If it doesn't do that, uh, it will be very difficult for a rider. Either he doesn't make the corner, yeah. because there's not a lot of engine brake from the rear, or it will snap out aggressively. Also, the design of your uh, sashi has to do with it, because everything is connected yeah. to motorbikes. That's why we love them so much. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you take a Honda, which seems to be very short, like a short wheelbase with a high center of gravity, if you have a problem with engine braking with the Honda, you have a big problem, because it snaps out very aggressively. On a Ducati, on the other hand, which is a longer bike, which is reacting always a little bit more in delay and more controlled and slower. So Ducati seems to be able to me, like they are able to use the rear brake, the engine brake over the rear tire a lot more than, than the Honda. The Honda can do it with Mark. Yeah. Because Mark's reflexes are from another world. Yeah. But with normal human beings, it's, it's hard. It's very difficult. Which is why we see the other Honda riders crash the most. Yeah, which is not cheap on a Honda. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks well, for Well, none pay. of these bikes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Now, since carbon swing arms are into play, yeah. it's a different thing. Yeah. Carbon brakes as well. Yeah. You know, brake discs in the, in the gravel trap. Yeah, yeah, it's all expensive. It is. Um, so when you started, how many channels did you have? What, what were you measuring? If I would start... No, no, sorry. no, when, when uh, you uh, started, uh, 20 years uh, ago. Far. We were already happy to have two wheel speeds a throttle and an RPM. Right, and that was... But actually, if you have a rear wheel speed and an RPM, you can calculate the gear position, so yeah. you have the gear position. If you divide the RPM by the rear wheel speed, you get steps that look like the gear position, but it's actually the gear ratio, and every time the clutch slips, that, that line is not flat, so it tells you the clutch is slipping. Yeah, so yeah, either yeah. it's worn out or the rider is using it. So that's a good example of having just a few sensors, but we can measure something. Yeah. Then brake pressure came into play, and with brake pressure, you, you were able to look at dive speed in the front fork. If you don't know how aggressively he was on the brakes, you can't see, you can't judge the speed that the front fork is diving. Yeah. So but once you have your brake, your suspension position, you can have your analysis program help you, which they do now all the time, by automatically, because in, initially, a suspension position is just a line going up and down over your screen. Yeah. And if you zoom in in some areas, like uh, the lower areas where the fog is really deep, it can be interesting to see, like I said, if it is still moving. Yeah. And where is it moving? Is it close to the bottom or is it far away from the bottom? But it also makes sense to look at it in another way. For example, let the computer give you a report that shows from all the corners on the track the suspension position in a certain moment. And you can write your own call it an algorithm or a color channel yeah. you can write down you say i only want to have suspension position in second and third gear i only want to want it when it's more than this degree of lean angle i only want it when there is no brake and no throttle so finally i end up with a roll face in every corner which is just two three tenths of a second that there is no brake no throttle lots of lean angle yeah and that's the moment that you want the bike to turn yeah the rider really is praying to turn because there 
all he can do is pray for turning because he's not braking. After that, he's opening the, tr the, the throttle yeah. and he wants the bike not to run wide. Yeah. Before that, he was on the brakes and hoping the front was washing out under him. And in this short moment of roll phase, you want to know the suspension position because this tells you the balance of the bike. Now you can zoom in on every corner and write all these numbers down or use your computing uh, power your analysis program to say I want it always automatically in every corner where I use second or third gear, no brake, no throttle, this lean angle, blah, 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 and it comes up automatically. So if you're in the middle of the, in the, in the session and the rider complains even with another tire about a certain problem in some corners, then it might be that your own suspension technicians say, let me look at what is the suspension position actually there and there and there. And you open your program, you don't need to zoom in, you don't need to scroll through data immediately, the report is there, you have the numbers. Yeah, exactly. So you can isolate specific areas where you yes. think the problem is. Yes, yes. So you take your average position from the suspension from the whole lap. You can even say, I want to have my dive speed from only these two corners, because these are the corners that my dive speed is very important and the bike arrives really straight to that corner because dive speed is is only honest to look at when the bike arrives for example really in a straight line yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on and so you can look at uh, one sensor signal but then put a lot of filters over it and only want to see it when this and this and this and this and this yes or this and this and this no and then yeah. you end up with the result which is really really pure yeah exactly um obviously you work a lot with 2d um uh, you help them with a lot of work you work with them uh, a lot a modern data logger on a bike. I mean, you started off with just uh, a couple of signals <laughs> and lots of big wires, exactly. and that all's gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many channels? How many channels could you log on a on a MotoGP bike? Four or five hundred easily. Yeah. So you need somebody and some help to analyzing it. Yeah. Because that's what what you're what you're going to with yeah, that question. Yeah, There's yeah. too much data to go through so quickly. Yeah. And so you have your steps. You have your safety-related data. You have all the data that that matters at the moment of the session. Yeah. Then you have your data that needs to be checked in between the session. And there's a lot of data which is like. Uh, research data. We look at it later or later in the evening or somebody in Japan is looking at it while Rush is going for free practice two. The Japanese engineers will study the data from free practice one, but they will study different data. Yeah. You know, and let's, uh, to give you an example, actually we have a good example because 2D is working a lot with manufacturers like, like Yamaha. Yeah. And uh, usually what they, what 2D is offering our customers uh, in an analysis possibilities is a request from the manufacturers. Yeah. So every time I open my analysis program and, it, and it's, I see some possibility that they don't understand why it's there, it, it means I don't know, I don't, I know something, I don't know something that I should know because they are, it's there with a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there because Yamaha, KTM or whoever asked for it. Yeah, it's, it's there because it's, it's there, there because Valentino with a really good, had a particular uh, exactly, problem. Exactly, turn three exactly. Turn three in the A good example is uh, like we like with the testing Qatar, for example, when the bikes do a lot of laps. Yeah. And uh, there is not like a session, and then we have two hours in another session. No, it's yeah. it's one big session the whole day. So you have so much data. They concentrate on the main things. Uh, they work with the test plan over day, but overnight we have uh, in our program possibilities to work with more, let's say, I call it big data. Yeah. It's like working with big data. Let's give a very simple example. The amount of movement that a rider uh, turns the throttle. Now, usually you see that as a line that goes up and down over the screen. What more can you do? Yeah. Now you can do a lot more with it. 
because usually, like I said earlier, the way he moves the throttle uh, is his confidence in the bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but if is you, this also true brake pressure, for example? Yes. Right. Or we do the same with brake pressure. Yeah. We do the same with brake. I just give an example. It can yeah. be suspension, whatever. Let's take this example. Maybe I change the example. I change it to suspension. Just yeah. suspension movement. And yeah. we call it, uh, actually, what I'm going to say now is called also movement in us. It means we automatically uh, calculate, measure all the movements from the suspension. Now you say, that's normal. No, it's not. Because normally we measure that suspension goes in and out and in and out. Yeah. But we calculate to um, make no difference between in and out. If it, yeah. if it goes in 10 millimeter and then goes back 10 millimeter, it moved 20 millimeters. If you make a calculation that measures the, the, the distance that your car, that your suspension has moved over one lap, that's already something you can think about. Initially, you say, well, it doesn't bring me anything. My suspension moved, for example, nine and a half meters more or less every lap. Yeah. But if you filter that data and compare it with a lot of other data, it starts to make sense. I will finish the, ship, the, the example. We filter this data, say we only want this movement from the suspension in, uh, in data which is relevant. So no in-laps, no out-laps. We only take, for example, all the laps that are within two seconds of its best lap. Yeah. So all the fast laps from that outing. Usually an outing is five to nine laps. After downloading, it will automatically first calculate the movements. Then it will filter out the shit data that's too slow. Yeah. Then it will put them in the min-max table and it will save it there. At the end of the day, you have a lot of information in these min-max tables, and then I will export them to Excel automatically via scripting procedure. Yeah. That you say, calculate all this data and put it in Excel. Then you come back from dinner and you open Excel, and suddenly you have a lot of rows that shows you the amount of meters that your suspension moved over the whole day per lap. Yeah. Now, usually you will see if you just tested small things all day, it will be the same all day and the next day and the other day and the other yeah. day but if at some point somebody put a new mapping in it or another tire or another suspension that was on the normal data and sometimes for the feeling from the rider it was still normal everything was okay it was a little bit better or a little bit worse sometimes the rider or the normal lines in data show very small difference but if you look at big difference a big data from a big difference distance you will see suddenly it makes a change yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so basically, like if, uh, over one lap, it might only be not point. It might yeah. be like a tenth of a, uh, I don't know, a couple of centimeters uh, overall compared to nine yeah. meters. But then when you add it up over the day, you see all of a sudden, whoa, right, this is a big spike. This is what crew chiefs do when they arrive home, or yeah, what yeah. engineers in Japan do. They see that in the morning, every lap has an average movement from the rear shock from nine and a half meters. Yeah. And suddenly in the afternoon, this average movement per lap became ten and a half meters. Then they start to look what changed. Yeah. In the what changed during lunchtime? That's usually a lot, but probably it was another throttle mapping or something. But it has to make sense. They have to find out why it was changing. And if you see the result it was changing, it can start to make sense in combination with other stuff. Now suspension is a clear example. You want to know how much the suspension has moved. But it might also be the throttle movement from the rider. Yeah. And that is easier to understand that it makes difference. If the rider has to do a lot of corrections, opening, closing, opening, closing, or less. Yeah. If a rider does the same lap time, but he opens less degree of the throttle per lap, he has an easier life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
but by following that line over one lap or look at this calculation for one lap or for a couple of laps only it doesn't change a lot no. sometimes you see that three days in Qatar it was always this number two days in Sepang it was always this number suddenly the third day in Sepang something changed ah that was when the swing arm went in yeah, so yeah. with the new swing arm stiffness which did nothing for tire life he has to move the throttle less ah that's good yeah 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 that's yeah. good because now we're looking for marginal gains yeah and sometimes you find them by not staring at that single line over one screen, but, but looking, at, looking at it in another way. Exactly. You, as we say in English, you, being able to see the wood for the trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have the same in all of that. Yeah, exactly yeah, the exactly, same. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Sometimes you have to step away and look again. So this is what, uh, this is what big data yes. could bring. Yes, yes, this, yes. Um, sense of average the, the, the seeing of, of larger scale patterns yes yeah, of a patterns larger, is a good word yeah, over yeah. a larger way another thing is um, tires yeah they look at in a big data way at tires as well especially because you have the unique opportunity to have your components your uh, competitions data as well yeah because after every session you see the race results of the session results you can see which tire he was using yeah and what lap time he was doing with it now we all know the conditions from that session because we were there ourselves and suddenly you see what they are already doing for years in cars and Ducati is doing something like that with Mega Ride but I'm sure all the manufacturers are doing it the same. KTM yeah. has one, at least one person just specifically for this job not only following the performance of their own tires what they do lap time wise, uh, wear wise uh, and in what conditions but also from the competition you can see how many laps Vala did on the medium tire on Saturday morning in these conditions and what yeah. his lap time was still after 10 laps. Yeah. And he put it in in 3-4 and he was again fast with it. So the Yamaha likes this tire a lot. Yeah. You know, before it's Sunday, you already know what the competition is doing with the tire. So following these tires all the time, it's very important for, for, uh, for manufacturers and race team, not only for in the weekend, but also in a bigger scale. Because we know Michelin has control tires, has only a couple of tires. Let's say there is 12 rear tires in total for the year. Every weekend they you get you get three of them. But they're not the three, they're every time they're usually three different ones, but yes. they're always three from these 12. They know the unique number. So if you are as a race team, have a very good uh, reporting system of how this tire with this code was acting, maybe two months again later you have that tire again on another track. But then it's like starting. But, but already you know more about the tire in the beginning of the weekend yeah. because you had it one, two, three times before this year and you wrote down the results from yourself and from the competition. That's another way of working, say, with big data. How far away are we from uh, Formula One in the sense of, I mean, we've all seen the pictures of Formula One teams, uh, you know, they, they have massive halls full of people sitting behind Lots of laptops. Every, every, yeah, every, every race weekend. Are we close to that do you think we'll ever get there no 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 donna is doing a really really good job by uh, making it a riders championship and uh, the result is that uh, our bikes are not as high tech as people might think or we think ourselves sometimes and that's a good thing uh, the more high tech the more freedom technical freedom you give to manufacturers the more they will use the more laptops they use and the more the engineers decide the result on the track by keeping it relatively low spec, by having spec electronics and spec tires that are not the best in the world, we have a spectacular good championship. So it's still a lot to learn from MotoGP, but it's not like this is the best the world can do. It's no rocket science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no rocket science. 
No. But if it was rocket science, it would be a lot less interesting to watch. Yeah, there will be no rider on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's the weakest link. Well, you know, you, you, Yamaha have a... Um, uh, Yamaha have a, have a robot which they're training to ride a, a, to ride a, ride a, ride a motorcycle. I think it's still something like 20 or 30 seconds a lap slower than, than a, uh, a top human rider. Um, Interesting, eh? Yeah. yeah they exactly. learn a lot from these projects. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, learn exactly. a lot. Yes, exactly. I know at 2D we sell uh, and we work together with manufacturers, like I said, and I know from Yamaha, for example, they have in Holland an R&D centrum. Germany is one from Honda, uh, BMW is also in Germany. So in North Europe, it's quite some manufacturers have R&D centrums all over the world, especially in North Europe. And by by looking at what we sell them or what they ask us to make for them, yeah. we know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's pretty obvious, actually. They have the age-old question, why do, do many riders, like you and me, normal humans, are usually going faster with, a, let's say, a naked bike on the track than with a sport bike? Yeah. Questions like that can best be answered. The first thing they did was putting strain gauges everywhere on the bike to see how much you push on the handlebars and on the footrest and on the seat. Next step, what they did, is putting these shoots on the riders that they use in film industry to yeah. measure the movements. Where is your arm? Where is your head? Because something is holding... They want to know inside your brain what you are thinking. Why you go this slalom course faster with a naked bike than with a sports bike? Yeah. So what we are looking for, what sort of feedback we are expecting from a bike, how we sit on the bike, how we move actually on a bike. Yeah. That's So research and development departments are very very interesting in, in a completely different way than racing is but uh, they all use sensors and analysis systems uh, to do to, to, do, to do to the find, same thing yeah, to, to learn basic yeah to answer to learn. basic questions yes yeah and asking the, asking the right questions is the is the most uh, that's where it starts yeah like we, we, we spoke a lot now data uh, David about data recording and, and, and big data and intelligent calculation channels blah 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 but in the end of the day that's just computing power. Yeah. It all starts and begins, and the most important thing still is asking the right questions. Yeah. So what do you want this computer to calculate for you? If you have no idea what's happening on a motorbike when it's going around the track, you will never ask the right questions, you will not learn. Yeah. And you can, you can get surprisingly far by having a good basic understanding of what a rider is doing and what he wants from a bike and how a bike is functioning. Then you don't always need all that sensors. Yeah. I like sensors because I'm an analyzing type of person. But you can conclude things with less sensor sometimes as well. You can. If um, if someone wanted to get into data recording, if they wanted to, you know, if they had a dream of becoming a, a MotoGP engineer, you know, uh, working for a MotoGP team, how do you start? What would be? I mean, like uh, because I was telling you earlier, I've been thinking about buying a little Raspberry Pi with a gyroscope and a GPS and um, uh, just strapping it to my bicycle and riding around and collecting data and then going away yep. to look at, look, look at data. Now, obviously, that's, those instruments are probably not quite as accurate as the stuff that 2D well, sells, yeah, right? If you look at the, at the simple tech spec that comes with it and you see the price, yeah. I can understand you start to think like that. Yeah. And it's, it's not a bad idea. You can, you can learn a lot for, because some of the electronic parts are really, really cheap. Yeah. Um, just realize that you can measure yourself on your bicycle very, very well. I don't know how fast your bicycle or what your corner speed is. Not as fast as you. Um, I know you spend a lot of time <laughs> on your mountain bike. No, so no, no, not as much as I would like to. That, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's it. Um, the more accurate you need to, to measure, like MotoGP or, yeah. or fast cyclists, 
the more precise you have to be with the material, and then suddenly it doesn't cost 20 euros anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, if I if you will, if I need to give somebody a career advice or a direction, if I could do my life again, yeah, uh, I would stay a lot longer at school, <laughs> do a proper study instead of messing around with bikes all the time. Uh, I would learn a lot more uh, mechanical, electronic. This area, this I would like to learn more and then quickly go into bikes, yeah. ride bikes myself, work with bikes, sleep with bikes, be with bikes, yeah. be in racing, and at some point it can all come together. Yeah. But you don't see many times an advertisement in the, in the newspaper. So you have, just to get in there is already really, really a big thing. It's not easy. Um, because, strange enough, you need to have a lot of uh, theoretical background, but at the same time, they want you to be very experienced. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And not so easy. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's not that easy. It's it's a it's almost a, a standing joke in the computer um, uh, in the uh, in the computing industry where they want you know, twenty one year olds with fifteen years yeah. experience <laughs> yeah. of, with a technology which is five years old. So um, yeah, that's that's that, that yeah, yeah, But I mean, yeah. there, there are. I mean, you could start off with a basic kit on your own motorbike. Oh, that's always and, the best. That's the most fun. That's the most fun you can have. See, yeah. And you will be surprised. I remember the first time we downloaded data at Tankate, I couldn't make any sense of the lines. Uh-huh. And uh, okay, this is a podcast, it's not a podcast, but this will be the moment that I will show you just just if you the way we measure wheel speeds on a motorbike. If I just plot the two wheel speeds on, on your screen, you will be puzzled too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't make sense initially. And that already was the first thing. So by looking at the data, trying to understand the data make me understand a lot better what is really happening on a bike. So first you need to have to feel and be able to ride a bike yourself. Then you start to measure it and then you say, oh, if I measure it this way, I don't actually measure what, I don't get the result I expected to. So where is my misunderstanding? So you learn quicker by measuring it and just trying to understand what you actually did measure. What is an acceleration? Yeah. yeah. What is actually an acceleration? That's a good thing. We, you know, an acceleration or a negative acceleration, what we, which we experience when we brake, is, is, uh, is a number, but uh, it's varying a lot with the speed. Yeah. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, I, have a, I, did, a de- I did a maximum deceleration on a track day of 2G. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Not at all. It does, when you come from school, you will say, oh, that's a good number. What's well, good or bad? But when you start to see data, okay, that alone doesn't make sense. I have to see it in combination with other stuff to know if it's a good braking or if it's not a good braking. Yeah, yes, exactly. Whether it was, you're doing it from 60Ks or from 300Ks. And, exactly. Or, uh, or exactly. Yeah. First time I came in Phillip Island. Oh, no, not the first time. But at, at some point I came at Phillip Island with, uh, with a team and I was studying the data from the rider from the year before, which was an incredibly gifted rider. And he was not braking for turn one in Phillip Island. And I'm like, okay, brake sensor was broken. because. But then I see all the other corners he was braking, but just not for turn one. Yeah. But you cannot go in there without minimizing your speed a little bit. But what you do is you, if you come up, especially there over the crest, yeah. if you roll down the throttle and you come up, you have a big deceleration. Yeah. So when I started to calculate the deceleration coming just from how quickly the front speed went down, it was a big deceleration because you arrived there with 250 plus, coming up behind the screen, coming up, making yourself a parachute and closing the throttle. Sitting up, sitting up, just using your body. In a blink of an eye, you go 150. That's a lot of Gs without brake. Yeah. 
And if that entry speed can be 150, you don't need to brake. In his case, he just didn't brake. And the advantage is that you're not upsetting the, 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 the bike by exactly. putting the force of a exactly. braking. So, so the front is yeah. a lot more. Um, Everything is. Again, I remember Wilco Zielenberg explained to me the first time that uh, Yamaha tested the aerodynamics, the wings, on the Yamaha M1. And it was a bomb. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 2015, I think. Yeah. Um, the, they were trying it at Aragon. You've got the long back straight uh, and then that really long left hander uh, where you're doing it's 300 and something. It's a great speed. Yeah, it's yeah. a very fast. But he said the difference was not so much about uh, the, the advantage, wasn't really sort of you know, anti wheelie, it was much more keeping the front wheel down at the end of the straight so that you yeah. could. You, you could brake more smoothly, yeah. brake more easily, and turn into the corner much more easily. So the gains were in, you know, somewhere completely yeah. different than you, the, the yeah, you might have exactly, exactly. You know, these these motorbikes are are monsters, and they're out to kill you, David. Yeah. If you arrive on that speed, because they're not. We, we measure top speeds, so they go to the speed trap and we say, okay, he was doing 320. No, he was not. He was doing 320 on that one square meter, but he was still accelerating like hell. Yeah. And at some point, he decides it's enough acceleration, he grabs the brake, but he does it very aggressively. You know, they shut the throttle and immediately go max brake pressure. Yeah. And the bike makes a crazy pitch to the front. And if you have in the beginning of the braking already the front a little bit lower and a little bit more weight on the front wire, you can grab it even more aggressively than before. And that's the first game. Yeah. So, but what these guys are experienced when they're riding around on MotoGP or, or even top world superbikes is crazy. Yeah. We have no idea. We have no idea. Sometimes I'm scared behind the screen by, yeah. by seeing the numbers. I'm like, unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. So it's a good combination of being on a bike yourself every now and then, and then looking at a date, it's oh, unbelievable. Yeah, it makes you appreciate uh, what they're capable of. Exactly. Another thing that helped so much in data recording to understand what was happening was measuring lean angle accurately, banging. Yeah. Because suddenly I see, you start to see that the bike was actually never upright. Yeah. Like here in Asia, just not. Yeah. Not even like 10%, just not. It's just not upright. And uh, how much throttle they already have, well, while still having a lot of lean angle. Yeah. They're accelerating out of this tight hairpin here, and they have it already nailed on the stop, but they're still making whatever 40 degrees of lean angle. Yeah. So that's high side area. Yeah. That's really scary. And a lot of corners where they arrive with banking and then grab the brake aggressively. Like the really fast uh, Ramsuk here in the end. That's crazy about flat out in six you approach it, already with banking in six and you have to be on the brake immediately yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't believe that yeah doing that yourself on, on a motorbike they do yeah so that's it's quite impressive sometimes just behind the screen i'm already impressed by what these guys are doing right, one last question you said that the first time you saw the difference in wheel speeds you were surprised what was the what was what was it that surprised you that there was so much difference what did you figure out from uh it was not that I was surprised, wow, this rider has a lot of uh, spin or a lot of uh, engine brake using or he's locking the rear. No, just by measuring a motorbike uh, by wheel speeds. Uh, actually, a, a little behind this is we, we measure the circumference of the tire, which is just the middle when the bike's upright. Yeah, 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 and then yeah. we say, for example, 20 triggers for the sensor is one, is one turn of the wheel. So yeah. that's two meters, for example. That's how we calculate bike speed coming from the wheel. Yeah. But since the bike's never upright, and the, it's always the circumference the shape, is always wrong. And the shape front and rear is different. Yeah. Even when the bike is doing an outlap or an inlap with really no real speed or acceleration, yeah. the speeds are already different. Yeah. Then I realized, oh, we are in trouble. 
it's not so easy to see positive spin or negative spin slip or, or so it's not so easy because there seems to be always slip yeah, yeah even yeah. when it's not yeah so just to calculate to already decide whether there is slip in the rear tire is a huge thing on MotoGP bikes yeah. to decide this is slip this is not because just 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 riding around with your knee on the ground with a steady speed through the corner is already looks like crazy spin but it's yeah. not yeah, so exactly. Because that's when things get complicated and you need acceleration forces, you need to have a tire model as a, as a lookup table inside your ECU. Yeah. If you have the banking angle and you have the tire model, how much it deforms by this degree so of lean angle. The, the shape yeah. of the tire, how yeah. much it deforms. Yeah, yeah. and every tire uh, is different. Yeah. So if you bring a new carcass, you need to make a new tire model. Yeah. Put it as a lookup table in your laptop, combine it with the lean angle correct it with the speed yeah because 50 degree lean angle in second gear is another thing than 60 degree in sixth gear yeah. because then the suspension is really loaded the tire is deforming a lot more yeah and if you do all these things you finally have the real speed from that uh, from the motorbike from the front and rear wheels and everything that is different at that moment is positive or negative spin so even with all these incredibly accurate sensors you're still not measuring what you think you're measuring you do yeah. you don't you need a lot of calculation just to more let's get there yeah exactly. interesting yeah exactly. that's why i like it <laughs> sidecars are easier they don't bank they don't do any banking exactly okay well that is absolutely fascinating thank you very much peter it's you're welcome absolutely david superb um, sorry about the motorbike noises but uh i think it actually adds um, you, you could you could hear exactly what peter was explaining about while we were while he was explaining it so anyway, thank you very much for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Emmett. This was together with Peter Boom. Um, we hope you will uh, subscribe um, on the, uh, well, in the various pod uh, podcast services, Spotify, uh, Apple uh, podcast, that sort of thing. Um, we hope you will follow us on social media at paddockpasspod on uh, the Twitters, um, Paddockpass Podcast on Facebook. Um, please also consider signing up to our Patreon, which helps us come to places like this. It would have paid. It will. It will pay for petrol for me to come up to us. Um, that's patreoncom podcast. Soon we will have some. Uh, unique content on there as well there is some fairly unique content for patron subscribers so um, thank you very much and until the next time